We have been studying the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews. This is a letter that probably began as a sermon and then was turned into a letter written to Christians in Rome who've begun to experience persecution. Uh, Later in the letter, it talks about how they've suffered the confiscation of their property. The writer acknowledges that about the people he's writing to, but he says, you've not yet suffered to the point of shedding blood, but the implication is that's on the horizon and they know it. And so the, the real issue that's going on that really uh, this, this letter is about is that these Hebrews, so they're Jewish Christians, but they're of Jewish background. In Roman law, Judaism was a protected religion. And for a while, Christianity was seen as a kind of Judaism. But when the Romans realized that Christians and Jews weren't actually the same, then they began to no longer give that special protection that the Jews had to Christians. And so for people who had been converted from Judaism to Christianity, when the persecution began, it raised a real serious issue. If we go back to being Jewish, then we can avoid this persecution. But the way to think about this, I I think, is not so much to think in terms of this religion or this religion, but what Christianity professes to be and what Jesus taught it to be is the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament and Judaism was looking forward to. So to think of it this way, the story has developed to this point. As a matter of fact, the letter to the Hebrews begins that way. In various times, in various ways, God has spoken to us through our forefathers. But now, there's a deliberate contrast there, but now he has spoken to us in Jesus. The revelation of what God has wanted to say to his people has culminated in Jesus. Therefore, if you go back you're moving away from Jesus and you are actually turning away from what God has revealed. It's a really big deal. It's a really big deal. Now, Hebrews chapter 6 is one of the more controversial passages in the whole New Testament. Um, There are people you know, probably, who think that once you become a Christian, that you are secure forever. And there are other people who believe that you can become a Christian, but then later you can lose that status, lose your salvation. And there are two camps about this. There's lots of little variations, but the the two big camps debate about that issue. And Hebrews 6 is one of the key passages that gets into that, right? Now, when I think about this passage, here's one of the things I always think about. Martin Luther said some crazy things, but he also said some helpful things. One of the more helpful things that I think he said was, bad theology is a cruel taskmaster. There's a lot of people who are living burdened lives, even as Christians, because they've bought into bad theology. And, and I think those that would teach that you can lose your salvation... I think that they put a tremendous false burden on God's children. Yet, 
we can't just explain this passage away. We have to deal with it honestly, and I hope that we're going to be able to do that tonight. But for my own story, this passage was one that really threw me into a dark place for quite a few years. Freshman year, I was up in Boston. I went to a place called Berkeley College Music, visiting churches like I'm sure many of you have done. Um, there weren't as many good churches to visit up there. Here in Nashville, of course, you could visit a good church every week for four years and never be done with finding good churches. That's a great blessing. In Boston, it was harder to find good churches, especially in those days. There's better churches there now. But I remember going to this church, and the pastor was in the middle of a series on Hebrews, and he came to Hebrews 6. I think this is one of the first times I'd ever been at this church. And I remember him saying that he used to believe that Christians if they really were Christians, would not lose their salvation. They couldn't like screw up in some kind of way and then God be like, oh, I'm kind of done with you. That's it, you know, cross the line. Um, he said, but now after studying this passage, I've come to believe that it's at least hypothetically possible for Christians to lose their salvation. And then he proceeded to talk about Hebrews 6. I'm gonna tell you, that's all I needed to where this kind of thought got lodged in my heart. If all of this can be swept away in a moment of weakness, then what's the point? And, and I will tell you, I was a Christian for three years, but I didn't really pursue God very hard. I went to some Christian stuff, but I basically had this like kind of weight around my heart because I had lost sight of what I had known when I first became a Christian through young life in high school, that God's love was immutable. And, and I had read passages in the Bible that, but that one sermon put such a cloud over me. Finally, I remember my senior year, I went and started going to a different church, met some other Christians at, at Berkeley. I, I, really, I didn't know hardly any Christians my first three years, but I met some other Christians my senior year. We actually started the Christian Fellowship at Berkeley, which is still there to this day. That was around 86. And, um, and I remember we had a pastor who would come teach this Bible study for us. <laughs> and even back then, I thought I was a know-it-all, right? Even though I hadn't been reading my Bible probably for like three or four years. But I remember one time he said something about, you know, Christians, you know, are secure in God's love if they really are his children. And I remember saying, oh, well, I think it's at least hypothetically possible for Christians to lose their salvation. Now, I didn't know what I was talking about. I was what you call a theological parakeet. I was just repeating something I'd heard, okay? There's a lot of that goes around. And, um, and he said, well, Kevin, what about Romans chapter eight, right? Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Nothing created or uncreated right? Things above or below. I was like, oh, well, yeah, I guess that's in the Bible, isn't it? And he goes, and what about John chapter 10, where Jesus says, you will never perish. No one will snatch you out of my hand. I was like, huh. And then he began to unpack the bad theology I bought into. Listen, this is a big question. And what's interesting is it's one that's actually somewhat counterintuitive. Even between Protestants and Catholics, there's a division on this very question. The Council of Trent in the 1500s, official Catholic declaration, said that assurance of salvation, knowing that you are saved, is a Protestant heresy. 
And one of the reasons that the church declared that is because they felt that if you knew that God's love couldn't be taken away, it would make you lazy. John Wesley taught the same thing. So some of you have come from church backgrounds, you know, that look the Methodist church or Nazarenes or some of those. Same thing and same reason. If Christians know that they're saved, then what is there to motivate them to really live for God? Right? All the pressure's off. Well, what's interesting, this passage, Hebrews chapter 6, has one of the most dire warnings in the first half of the passage that we're going to read. But the second half is one of the most encouraging passages about the security of those who are God's children that there is in the whole Bible. Do you know that hymn that we just sang on Christ the solid rock is taken almost entirely from the second half of Hebrews chapter 6. So I asked Mikey to sing it. Thanks for changing to be able to do that. That's a very strong song about the security of God's love for those who are his children. But it's right after one of the most dire warning passages. Well, let's read it and then we're going to dig into this. Hebrews chapter 6. I'm actually going to start reading at verse 1, but we're really going to focus our discussion tonight uh, from verse 4. But I'll just give the context here a little bit. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from acts that lead to death and of faith in God, instruction about cleansing rites, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And God permitting, we will do so. I always think that part's kind of funny because I was like, if we did a theology exam right now of all these elementary teachings, I wonder how well we would do. But we're going to move on to verse 4. It is impossible. It's very stark. It is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is, it is farmed receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. Whenever the Bible says surely, that's an oath. That's what it means. I will surely bless you. He could have just promised. But when he says surely, that's him swearing an oath. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now people swear by someone greater than themselves, 
And the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hope of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain or behind the veil, as we sang in the song, where our forerunner, Jesus, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let me pray, and then we'll dig into this. Lord, we do thank you for your word. Pray that you would help us, that we would be greatly encouraged, even as the writer of Hebrews says he desires us to be. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me get my drink here. Ugh. I had my uh, COVID booster, like, what was it, Friday, Saturday? It's still kind of hitting me. So, yeah. Anyway. All right, Hebrews chapter 6, right? As I said, this is a passage that creates all kinds of debates, right? On the one hand, you have all of the passages in the Bible, and there are tons of them, that clearly teach that Christians cannot lose their salvation. I read some of them to you. I put some others in the outline. Romans 8, nothing can separate you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. John 10, no one can snatch you out of my hand, Jesus says. These are real and precious promises, and they're all through the Bible. So then what do you do with a passage like this? Because this seems like a pretty stark warning. It's impossible if you fall away to be restored to repentance, because to do so would be to crucify Jesus all over again. So what do you do with that? Well, some try to explain away the force of the words. And there are a couple different strategies people have used to try to make sense of this passage in light of the rest of the Bible's teaching. There, one approach, and it's a pretty common approach, is to say that these words have to be taken in a weaker sense. In other words, tasted is not the same as eaten. So they've tasted a little nibble, but they haven't really eaten. They haven't really consumed. They haven't really tasted that the Lord is good. They've just had a little, a little nibble. Or to say that impossible, it doesn't really mean impossible, it just means really, really, really hard, but not impossible for God, because nothing's impossible for God. So that's one approach. I think it's a little weak myself. It doesn't satisfy. There's another approach. Um, there's a participle here. Do you all know about participles? Listen, when I went to seminary, I had to go get a book on English grammar, because I went to Berkeley College of Music. I just told you that. So I didn't know what the heck a participle was. But in Greek, participles are used a lot. And there's a lot of ways, participles are basically ing words, okay? And there's lots of different ways you can translate participles in Greek into English. And so one possible way is to translate it this way, to say, while falling, it's impossible to return. But that's kind of a nonsense statement. You have to wonder, why would they say that? Of course, while you're falling, it's impossible to return. But what if you stop falling and then return? But that's one people are trying to say, well, it's a participle. Therefore, it's not really as strong as it might seem. Another approach is to say it's a hypothetical warning. But what kind of warning is a hypothetical warning? It seems pretty strong, doesn't it? We don't want to just let our theology determine how we interpret passages in the Bible. Uh, the, the, we really do want to try to wrestle with 
How does scripture interpret scripture? And so the question is, is there a better way to understand this passage? And I think there is based on the context, which I'm gonna share with you in just a second. But the first thing I need to say is when we talk about losing your salvation, and maybe you've heard this uh, little phrase, I know I heard it a lot growing up, once saved, always saved. Ever, anybody ever heard that? So, and sometimes you hear about eternal security. The Bible actually doesn't use that phrase that way. And I actually think that that's not the most helpful phrase because it flattens out something that in the Bible is actually more nuanced and a little more complicated. The Bible does speak about spurious faith. There are people, Jesus says, who on the last day will come to him and say, Lord, Lord, we cast out demons in your name, we did miracles in your name, and I will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Not I knew you, but you screwed up. I never knew you. What, what does that show us? Well, it shows us that sometimes people may really look like they are true believers, but they may not actually be. John chapter 2, there's a place where it talks about disciples following Jesus no more. And Jesus, it says that Jesus did not trust himself to men because he knew what was in the heart of mankind. There are numerous places in the Bible Certainly, great example, Peter and Judas. Now, what's interesting, if you look at Peter and Judas, both of them were disciples. Both of them, as far as we can tell, were able to cast out demons and heal people. Remember, Jesus sent out all the disciples two by two. And when they came back, they were fired up. They were like, Jesus, you won't believe what happened. Even the demons are subject to us. And Jesus, you remember he said, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. But here's what's interesting. At the Last Supper, when Jesus says, one of you will betray me, the rest of the disciples did not look at Judas and say, it's got to be him because he wasn't able to cast out demons like the rest of us. There was nothing about Judas that would have told you that he was the betrayer, okay? In fact, you could say that Peter's betrayal is even worse because he didn't get paid. And he denied Jesus in the face of the testimony of a slave girl whose evidence couldn't be admitted in a court of law in that culture. She couldn't have made any charge about him. But still, he denied Jesus three times, okay? But if you remember, at the Last Supper, at the foot washing, Jesus said, I need to wash your feet. You remember Peter rejected that, said, no, you can't wash my feet. I need to wash your feet. He said, no, I have to do this. And then Jesus, Peter said, well, if you're going to wash my feet, well, just wash all of me. You know, give me a whole bath then. And Jesus said, I don't need to give you a bath. You all are washed except one of you. So already at that point, Jesus is distinguishing Peter and the rest from Judas. There was something different about him, but it wasn't something that was apparent to anybody. How do we know? Because of the way the story unfolded. 
This is regularly the teaching in the Bible in 1 John chapter 2. 1 John is basically the Apostle John writing to Christians whose leaders have abandoned Christianity. So, so imagine, you know, if, if you know, you're in this church and your pastor basically becomes a heretic and, and deconstructs and quits being a Christian, and then like maybe the person who planted that church, uh, who still has some kind of relationship, writes a letter. And he basically says, those false teachers went out from us, but they were not of us. If they were of us, this is 1 John chapter 2, then they would have remained with us. The point is, perseverance is the test of reality. And so the writer of Hebrews is writing to a group of people who have all enjoyed the blessings of the gospel. They've all experienced the power of the Spirit, but it hasn't changed the heart of all of them. And they're at a critical point where some of them are thinking about ditching it all. So the warning is real. There is no hope apart from Jesus. There is no hope apart from Jesus. But look at what it says here in verse 7. And I think this is a really key to understanding what's going on here. It's, it echoes the parable of the sower. If you remember that parable about the sower sows seed and some of it springs up for a while and then it dies because it doesn't have roots or it grows up on stony ground. But some of it finds good soil and produces incredible fruit. That's the echo here. And it's important to understand what the writer is saying here to understand this passage. He says this, land that drinks in the rain often falling on it and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God, but land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Now, it's interesting because all through this letter, all through this letter, there are repeated calls. Today, while it is still today, do not harden your heart. This land is in danger, but it's not yet been rejected. But take heed. Don't turn away. Don't turn back. It's serious. Land that drinks in the rain produces fruit, but not all of it. But what does he go on and say? Verse 9. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case. The things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He'll not forget your work and the love you've shown him as you've helped his people and continue to help him. He's not saying you've done such good works that you earn salvation. What he's saying is I've seen tangible fruit that the gospel has made a difference in your life, even risking your own safety. Because if you're going to help people who are being persecuted, you're going to be identified with that tribe. And that's a dangerous thing to do in this time and in this place. So God is not unjust. He sees this fruit. And you should see the fruit too. It should encourage you. Nonetheless, don't turn back. Don't turn back. You see, the description in verse 4 and 5, those who've been enlightened, those who've tasted the heavenly gift, those who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, those are all true of Christians. 
We don't need to weaken those, but those are also things that fall on the community of the people who are in and around and among the Christian church. But the question is, has it changed your heart? It's not enough just to to celebrate all the blessings that you've had by being around the ministry of the Word of God. Has it actually pierced your heart and changed your heart? He's convinced that they are in a better case. Nonetheless, if they turn back, then that will be showing that maybe they weren't actually what they thought they were. So what's the writer trying to do? Is he just trying to scare them? Was he just trying to scare them? I don't think so. And the reason I don't think that is because of what he says next in verse 11. He wants them to show the same diligence to the very end, right? Verse 12, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. And then he goes through this whole thing about God's promise and swearing an oath. So here's where I differ with John Wesley, great man though he was. Here's where I differ with the Catholic Church, though not in everything, of course. He actually says, I don't want you to become lazy, so then let me tell you all the reasons you have to be encouraged about the security that you have in God's love. So while it may make sense to us, I think in a human way of thinking, that if you give people assurance, it will make them lazy. In actuality, it doesn't. Why? Because when you see who God is and what he's done to give you this assurance, it has to break your heart. It has to melt your heart. And the thing that people leave out of the equation so often is they think that you're going to just take advantage of God. You know, I remember Charles Spurgeon one time said, when I thought that God was a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I understood that he was a loving father, then I smote my breast that I would ever sin against one like this. While it may seem that having a clear vision of our merciful and faithful and great high priest would make you lazy, it's actually the only thing that can change your heart. Otherwise, you're just trying to do like a cost-benefit analysis. Like, how much of this Christian stuff do I need to do to get God's love and make sure I'm safe and that I'll get a get-out-of-hell-free card? That's not the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel comes from seeing who God is and what he's done. And that's why the writer goes into this whole next section. And I think this is one of the most incredible passages in the Bible. So let's look at this. Why should we have confidence? The writer says because of the promises of God. Right? How how does he encourage them in their faith? by opening their eyes to see God the promiser and particularly what he did with Abraham where he goes above and beyond what was necessary. Look at this. The author of Hebrews is optimistic because of the promises of God. In verse 13, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. 
And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now people swear by someone greater than themselves. Why do we swear? Because we're untrustworthy. We swear because we can't be trusted. But the hope is, if you swear on the Bible, or you swear to God, or if you, you know, do some other kind of swearing like that on your mother's grave or whatever, that that will at least give you pause before you break your word. That's why people swear. But you understand, there's no need for God to swear. Because God's character is unchanging. His word is inviolate. He cannot lie. So why would he swear an oath to Abraham? You know why? Because Abraham needed all the help he could get. He had weak faith. God had made a promise to him. But do you remember how often Abraham failed to believe that he really was going to be the father of great nations? At times, he tried to take matters into his own hand. Even his wife got in on the act. Here, take my servant. You can impregnate her and that'll count as an heir. Maybe that's the way God wants to fulfill the promise, but that wasn't the way, right? He had weak faith. And you know what God does in the face of weak faith? He gives extra assurances. That's what the sacraments are for. That's what circumcision was for. That's why God put Abram into a deep sleep and went through the pieces of the animal by himself and cut the covenant with him, over and over and over again, God goes above and beyond what is necessary. All that Abraham needed was God say, I'm going to do this. That settles it. It's similar to Gideon. Do you remember the story of Gideon? You know, Gideon should never have laid out a fleece. When God said, do this, that should have been enough. But Gideon says, well, how about I lay out a fleece, and if you put dew around it and not on the fleece, then I'll know. And God does it. When God should have said, how dare you not believe what I say and do what I say? And then he does it again. Do you see? I don't know what you think about God, but God is one who goes above and beyond what is necessary. Why? So that as Hebrews says, we would be greatly encouraged. Look at this. Verse 17. Why did he do this? Why did he swear an oath to Abraham? Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, so he confirmed it with an oath. Who are the heirs of what was promised? Well, to us. Do you realize that God swore an oath to Abraham so that we could be greatly encouraged about the unchanging nature of his promise? God had promised to make for himself a people. He had promised to marry himself to his sinful people. And he sent Jesus to cleanse us so that we could be the bride, spotless, united to him. And God was committed to that, and he wouldn't back down. The whole story of the Old Testament is about that promise. It was made in Genesis 3.15. I will, I will send one who will be the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And the rest of the Bible, the whole dramatic kind of tension is whether God can actually keep that promise. And there are a lot of threats to that promise being kept. The, one of the big ones is all of the people that try to wipe out the seed line of the Messiah by wiping out Israel. It's not just about genocide. It's about keeping God's promise 
to bring the seed of the woman to crush the head of serpent from being realized. But the even bigger threat to that promise is God's own people's unbelief. But you see here what he does, even in the face of Abraham's unbelief, the one who is going to be the father of many nations, still falls into unbelief. And God says, no, I want to swear an oath. I am really going to do this. I'm really going to do it. And I want the unchanging nature of my purpose abundantly clear to everyone who will come after me. All the heirs of the promise. That's you and me. And look in verse 18. God did this. So that by the two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. What are the two unchangeable things? His word and his character. They're unchangeable. So that we who have fled to take hope of the hope, hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. And I love that it puts that word greatly in there. God doesn't want you just to be a little encouraged. Because a little encouragement means very little power. Do you understand I heard Tim Keller say this one time, and the more I've thought about this, I think he's exactly right. The degree to which you are assured of God's love is the degree to which you have power to live the Christian life. Assurance is the power to live the Christian life. This comes out so clear in chapter 9 of Hebrews. We're going to talk about it more when we get there, but I'll just say this. Talks there about how much more than the blood of bulls and goats, how much more the blood of Christ will cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Hebrews 9.14 says, you can't serve God unless your conscience has been cleansed by the blood of Christ. You can do a lot of Christian things, but you're going to be doing them so that you can be sure that God loves you. That spoils everything. That spoils everything. The real Christian life comes out of the assurance of knowing that God has swore an oath so that we would be greatly encouraged by his unchangeable purpose to make for himself a holy people. And you know when we need to know that? In the midst of persecution. We need to know that in the midst of our sin, when we're wallowing in our guilt and our shame, to know, no, no, remember, God swore an oath. He said, surely I will do this. You think that your sin can stop God's oath? Can't. It can't. You have to use that to do battle against your fear and your unbelief. But there's one other thing we have. Well, two other things that we have to be encouraged. One is Jesus actually did something. In real space-time history, we're not just talking about ideas, right? And what does he say here in verse 19? We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. That means it goes into the Holy of Holies, the very face of God where the high priest could only go once a year and then only after they'd made sacrifice for their sin. But Jesus enters into that place and then look at verse 20, behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. Do you know the power of that? Jesus has entered the Holy of Holies on our behalf for us. And he has become, look at this, a high priest, look at that word, forever. 
So we can be encouraged because God has sworn an oath. He can't lie, and his word can't be broken, and his character doesn't change. But not only that, Jesus actually did something. He entered into the Holy of Holies and made purification for sins. That's chapter 1, verse 3 of Hebrews. Jesus made purification for sins, and then what did he do? He sat down because he finished the work. And he's still alive. He has become a high priest forever. And he ever lives to make intercession for his people. No, he's not being sacrificed over and over again. That's what the Catholic Church teaches. That's not what's happening. Jesus lives to plead his wounds before the Father and say, just in case you forgot, but of course God can't forget because he's omniscient. But just in case you forgot, I'm here to remind you that that's my child. And I died for them. Right? Man, how much more encouragement do you need? You have God swearing an oath. You have Jesus entering into the Holy of Holies, dying a death he did not deserve for us on our behalf. And he's even now seated at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for his people. That does not make you lazy, guys. And when you find that you're struggling to live the Christian life, you may think you need a kick in the pants. But that's worldly thinking. Oh, it may change your conduct for a while, but it'll actually make your heart grow more and more bitter. But to see who God is and what he's done doesn't make you lazy. It changes everything. And so while it may seem counterintuitive, the Bible's answer to helping us persevere is to show us who God is and what he's done for us. Not to scare us, but to encourage us. You can jury-rig your heart for a while, and I think a lot of youth ministry works this way, honestly and sadly to say, to make you kind of feel bad, like you better not step outside of like God's will or he's going to zap you or something. No, you are secure in God's love. Come hell or high water, because God has promised he can't lie. His word can't be broken. Jesus has entered into the Holy of Holies, and he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, he will never stop intercessing on our behalf. That's good news. That is what changes us, and that's what encourages us to take hope and hold of the hope that we have. Remember, in the Bible, hope is never just kind of wishful thinking. Hope in the Bible is always something that is solid and secure. I know the way we use that word in English can make us misread the Bible, but the word in the Bible never means wishful thinking or like, oh, I really hope this will happen. No, hope is something solid and secure. You actually live this day based on that day because it's so solid and secure and it spills over into this day. You've already been judged. You've already been judged if you're a Christian. We know what God thinks about you because what he said about his son is what you get credit for. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. You've already been judged, right? This is why it's called an anchor for the soul. This is why 1 Peter chapter 1 says we have an inheritance kept in heaven for us where we can't get at it and screw it up. It'll never perish, spoil, or fade. You see, over and over again, the Bible wants us to drink deep of what we have so that we could be greatly encouraged to continue and to persevere. That's Hebrews 6.
Let me pray.